Welcome to the Establish the Edge podcast. I'm your host, Pat Corain, and with me is my co-host, Mike Leone of EstablishTheRun.com. Mike, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well. A bittersweet podcast for us, Pat. It's your last episode of Establish the Edge. So, you know, I, I'm we, we had such a great year doing this. I think we both learned a lot, and hopefully the people out there listening learned a lot. And yeah, Pat, tell the people... What you got going on in case they didn't listen last week? Yeah, I, I was able to, to take a full-time position with NBC Sports Edge. I'm starting there uh, this coming Monday officially. Uh, already contributing a little bit of content uh, for the draft kit, which has been a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, recording this Wednesday and uh, starting Monday, June 7th will be my full-time job there. And uh, unfortunately, that means that my contributions to to establish a run uh, are coming to an end, including this podcast, which has been an absolute joy, man. Like this has been just a, like a really amazing experience to kind of be able to talk through some strategy questions. I feel like I like learned things as we were like literally during yeah. the episodes, <laughs> you know, I was like, 100%. Oh, things are clicking for me, you know, cause we were kind of able to just talk through stuff and have really kind of revealing conversations about some of these strategy points. So I'm really going to miss doing it, but the podcast is going to be continuing. So Mike, uh, why don't you let everyone know what's going on with that? Yeah, the podcast will continue. Pat, you're irreplaceable, so we're not going to replace you. It's going to be <laughs> me hosting the podcast and kind of doing some rotating guests depending on topic. So that means you know, hopefully we'll have Pat on to guest on an episode in the future still get his opinion there and make sure you guys follow Pat's work as he goes over to NBC sports edge. Uh, I have said this before, but it needs to be said again that you, you know, your opportunity here to be in the space full time is just going to be plus EV for everyone. Cause that means we get more content from you. You get more time to dig in more time to find Jalen Rager athletic tidbits. So <laughs> I'm, I'm pumped. So make sure to, to keep following Pat, but yeah, establish the edge. We'll keep going. Uh, I'm going to have an episode next week with Jack Miller. Who's done some good stuff evaluating the running back dead zone for us. So we'll talk about that. And at the end of June, beginning of July, Ben Gretsch is going to join me for kind of like an ET special series where we'll dig in on the projections. We'll do like division by division breakdowns, uh, kind of projections oriented focus and look at, you know, the, the more interesting situations and where projections can help us, where they might hurt us. And, you know, hopefully that'll, that'll turn into a lot of actionable information. As far as the dynasty stuff on ETR, Anthony and Miko, we've brought on to do the dynasty ranks. So Pat, I do want you to know, I saw his first draft of ranks and Rashad Bateman's in a safe place. He's in a okay. good spot. All right. So I was a little worried. I know. So I want you to know that... <laughs> that anthony is is picking up where you left off with that makes me feel a lot better no anthony's amazing (laughs) uh he's done some incredible wide receiver research that i've like referenced repeatedly in uh you know in in rankings and in the wide receiver articles that i've done for the site so that's just like the perfect person i'm i'm super excited anthony's also really good at dynasty like he won that auction league that we're in both startups oh he won the other one too wow yeah Yeah. so he's He's perfect. He's an incredible dynasty player. Uh, awesome, awesome writing, awesome research. So 
the as site's going to be in incredible shape. As an aside, you know my little bubble of friends I play Dynasty with likes the young players a little bit too much when Anthony, his his rankings are very slanted towards youth as yours were, Pat, and yet he uh, still decided to go all in and try to win both those leagues and did it successfully, uh, which, yeah. which meant that the rest of the league, we, we might have gone a little overboard on age. Well, Mike, I own, I believe, half the draft picks for the next draft, so don't, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, told, I don't think I went overboard. That seems unfair. I told – well, you – you uh, yeah, I, I went all in with Amico and finished second, of course, and to go all in, I sent Pat all my future picks in this draft, and I told Pat, I think I got one year and I'm going to tear it down, and Pat, who's holding my 2023 picks, goes, yeah, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> You have no idea how happy I was to hear you talking about tearing down a team that that I am the 2023. (laughs) I was like, this is going to be incredible. Um, But yeah, so, so yeah, Anthony winning both those leagues, I think is a pretty strong testament. But the, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that series that you're doing with Ben, that is kind of how I got started in sort of seriously podcasting was doing a series just like that with Ben. Ben and I for Rotoviz did uh, like a 32 team preview series where we interviewed a beat a beat writer for each team. This was in 2016, I, I think. I remember there yeah. was a good Mike Evans discourse in these okay. podcasts. I feel like I know it's a weird thing to remember, but I do remember <laughs> this. This is like before I knew you guys, like to the point that I forgot it was you and him yeah. doing the podcast. Like recollecting it now. Yeah, because we did beat writer interviews, but then we also did like upside and uh, and and uh, downside projections for each team or for specific scenarios, basically. And anyway, it was a ton of work, and I feel like I like leveled up like three times like during the series because we didn't leave ourselves enough time, <laughs> and we just like took on way too much, but we got it all done, and it was a uh, it was definitely like a huge learning experience for me. So that's pretty exciting. You know, Ben's going to be coming on here and doing that on this feed as, uh, you know, part of the replacement package. I think that'll be awesome. That was like truly doing those projections and kind of hearing Ben's take on like his scenarios was I felt incredibly well prepared for redraft that season. So I think that that exercise is going to be awesome. Can't wait to hear that. It's it's fun to get that information out there, especially, you know, I do a lot of work with it behind the scenes and it feeds into our rankings, but no one you know, the projections are kind of just internal right now. So to kind of talk about them, that process will be good. And to your point about Ben, you know, I know I've made some improvements to my process talking to Ben, particularly like how I weigh upside cases versus just doing a base projection and try and combine that, you know, Ben, the, the Stefan Diggs example is the perfect one. The guy Ben was really on last year who I got on because it was like, wow, this guy has the talent to earn 30% targets. So like, let's wait that a little bit and not just wait the fact that he's entering a crowded receiver room of guys that aren't as talented as him. So should yeah. be fun. Um, hopefully we'll learn a lot, but we've learned a lot the past uh, year on this podcast, Pat. So I figured it'd be fun to kind of roll through some, some of our favorite concepts, you know, not go over them all in full, but um, just talk about some of our favorite episodes and biggest lessons we learned from those. Yeah. To me, like the, the most fun episodes for me were the deep dive episodes that we did. Um, 
and we did uh, one on correlation. Uh, we did one on uncertainty. We did one on diversification. And those are the, the episodes where I felt like I learned the most by far because one, I got a chance to like really get a lot of your expertise kind of out there and um, dig into like a lot of the DFS related stuff and dig into a lot of the like redraft and, you know, kind of overall like structural strategy stuff and have a lot of those deep conversations on that. I felt like uh, listening back to those, that things were like clicking for me again. Like I realized like how similar some of those themes were um, between episodes. And I was like making connections between the episodes. So I, I was really, I'm really proud of those episodes. Uh, I think they really are evergreen. Listening back to them, we didn't go too, too into the weeds on examples. Um, or at least we use the examples as ways to illustrate our points. So they're very easy to listen back to now. Um, and I plan to listen back to, you know, the correlation and diversification, like really all of them before DFS. Like I want to kind of have a lot of that stuff fresh in my mind as we're entering DFS season, because I think there were a lot of nuggets in there. Yeah. You talked about, how doing these podcasts helped us kind of figure out our own thoughts on the fly, like as we were having the conversations. And one episode that sticks out to me a lot is when we talked about maximizing your edge, you know, kind of like finding your edge and basically optimizing around whatever that edge is. And that that's like somewhat generic, but I think for fantasy, you know, we, I think this was maybe on the diversification episode. I'll have to go back and check, but we were talking about how, you know, in best ball leagues, for example, if your structure is the edge, like you might not want, I think we were talking a lot about like Jalen Rager and redraft versus Justin Jefferson about how probably didn't want to go all in on Rager over Jefferson because that wasn't necessarily where your, your main edge was, you know, you didn't want, yeah. you didn't want to go all in on something that was going to ruin your edge when it wasn't even your edge. So it was kind of like go all, not all in, but like go heavy on where you think your edge is, but then like diversify around that edge and talking through that, you know, helped me a lot because it's applicable to like best ball redraft DFS, literally everything. Yeah. That was the diversification episode. And there were a couple of good examples in there. One I brought up doing, um, you know, a lot of zero running back drafts, but being overweight on Cortland Sutton and Cortland Sutton was not the key to the strategy. It was, you know, a number of wide receivers in that range who are really good values, but to be, you know, so overexposed to, to one in my best ball portfolio in particular was a mistake because that was not where my edge was. And you had an example of using a, uh, a bring back where the bring back was not, the strategy that you had that you had uncovered the the strategy you know was was the main stack and then your bring back ended up being a lot of Terry McLaurin who busted that week but luckily you had also brought back Antonio Gibson after talking to Dank he had flag planted him and so you diversified your bring back and having that diversification and having Antonio Gibson exposure allowed your main strategy to still succeed where you could have ruined it if you just put it all on Terry McLaurin, who wasn't what you felt conviction on. And you had a line basically like we were talking like, what do you actually have conviction in? You know? 
And I think yeah. that's just something to really think through. And basically every, every strategy you're, you're employing, because it's easy to kind of certain pieces fit in with the strategy really well. And you just end up kind of going with them every time. But do you actually have conviction on this guy being the best play? You know, you know, if you're taking Cortland Sutton all the time, is he actually like the key to your entire season? Or is the conviction that this is going to be an incredible setup for zero running back, given the running back ADP and all the uncertainty last season? And even applying that to you know, a single team and a single decision, I think has applications, not just if you're doing multiple teams. Last week, we talked about this startup auction draft that I did, and I kind of got caught spending too much on quarterbacks because I was a little too focused on like the micro value of the quarterbacks. And I, you know, I spent a lot on Kyler Murray early. I felt pretty good about it. Got Jalen Hurts at a good price. And then these rookie quarterbacks were going way too cheap, and I grabbed Justin Fields. And that hurt me because my edge in this league was going to be anchor running back strategy where I'm going to spend way less than everybody else on RB2. I'm just going to figure it out in season waivers and whatnot. I'm going to be good with two quarterbacks, but like super stacked at receiver. And I couldn't get stacked as deep at receiver because of that. Then post-draft, I sort of like fixed my error. And I made a trade that was probably minus EV in a vacuum where I shipped out Kyler Murray and Terrace Marshall to get Tua and DJ Moore, but that gave me my structural edge that I really wanted. You know, I have now I have DJ Moore, Jamar Chase, CD Lamb, Chase Claypool. Like I have this huge receiver depth, and I still have Rondell Moore, Rashad Bateman, like other young rookie receivers. So I took that small hit in value, which is kind of akin to a draft and diversifying when you like two players. If you were between two players and you like one more than the other, it's technically a value hit to take the one you like worse, but sort of like understanding that you don't want this decision to be made the exact same way in every single draft and, and like potentially totally tank you if that's not your edge case. Yeah. And one thing that uh, I feel like I learned a lot was actually doing that startup with you. And we talked about this on the, the show, but we, we did a dynasty startup together and Mike kind of took the lead on some trade downs that we did. And we made a lot of moves and we really repositioned where our picks were. And we made those trades I mentioned on the show at times at like a slight value loss. Often they were pretty much even, but like at times I think we even were taking like slight hits in terms of the trade calculator or whatever. But that being an overall win because our strategy what we were really betting on was that we had identified pockets of the drafts of the draft that were places with, that were really value rich and then pockets of the draft that were kind of overvalued and to be able to move around and have the flexibility, not just to identify where you think the value is, but also to then be able to build the structure that you want to build because you're set up to have the picks where you need them to build that structure. Both of those are giving you massive edges. If you're taking tiny value hits to get there, it is, so, so worth it. But a lot of people won't do that. And myself included will sometimes be on a macro or on a micro level going, be going, uh, I should really get back, you know, the 1105 instead of the 1204, you know, you're kind of like nitpicking stuff and it feels like you're getting taken advantage of, or that you're losing value when you shouldn't be. But that is just little micro stuff that you, I think, want to overlook sometimes to make sure your macro strategy is being achieved because that's the thing that's going to drive your edge. 
Yeah. And it, it was really difficult to be patient. And you know, not only did we like pockets of the draft, but it was the, that FFPC triflex Rotoviz dynasty structure where best ball scoring really deep rosters, we knew depth was going to be important and we wanted to load up on depth. So there was even a point where you know, we passed on Jamar Chase to take a trade offer. And like, it was tough, but we kind of knew our edge was more in this macro strategy than it was, even though Chase at that point in time would have been a really good value. Like, yeah. so, you know, but it's kind of like, that was sort of like recentering ourselves. I was kind of like, where's our edge? And it's like, as much as we love Chase, as much as we love the value, like that's not where our edge is. And we kind of follow where our edge was. And I think we ended up with a team structurally that's like set up super well. And while we're on the topic of dynasty, one of the biggest things I think I learned from you, like as far as like a specific takeaway doing this podcast was really reshaping my brain to evaluate dynasty trades and even just players and startup around the idea that I want to be cognizant of trade value a year out. Like, you know, the liquidity of players and just really thinking through that lens I think I've gotten way better at dynasty. I think I've avoided some potentially big mistakes uh, by having that in the back of my mind where, you know, it's the, the, the only, it's not just how I feel about the player. Like that's not the only input that goes into it because so much changes in dynasty so much, so quickly, you're going to be, have to be able to have a team that can go in and out of contention and do it without, going through like a full teardown, like essentially, and having that, you know, in mind is super helpful. Yeah. And that's like kind of one of those things that I was talking about, like things kind of clicking and, and going together, because I think that my philosophy with, with dynasty and trade liquidity and stuff, it does tie into one of the things that you talk about a lot of like being right about less things or getting less things right. And I think like if you're taking a guy in dynasty where the trade value isn't going to be there, the following year, you have to be right. And there's and there's situations where it's okay to have to be right. I mean, sometimes the price is really cheap or you have like extreme conviction on this guy and, and you're willing to bet that, you know, he's going to have this great year. But you should know at least that that's what you're doing. Um, and I think sometimes people, they end up drafting players who are kind of buy low type guys or whatever and they don't necessarily realize that what they're doing is putting themselves in a position where they absolutely have to be right, where that guy has to come through that season or his trade value is just going to absolutely collapse. Um, so it really does, I think, tie back to to that idea of needing to be right about less things. And, you know, that was one of the things that we talked through in um, in one of the deep dive episodes. I believe it was the uncertainty episode or might it was a correlation episode where it first came up. And uh, I thought that was just a really helpful way to think through a number of things. We started bringing that idea of being um, right about less things. It occurred to me that that also came into how we were talking about late round dart throws in redraft leagues. And we basically, I think inadvertently came up with a new strategy in that episode that we never named. So I'd like to name that now, which is robust dart throw. (laughs) (laughs) Because we were talking about how, you know, we could have taken like all the, uh, all the Jacksonville Jaguars running backs. Um, And, you know, by the same token, we could have taken all of the Miami running backs. Um, 
because when you look at uh, all of these late round picks that you make, despite how you feel at the time that, you know, you're finding these values that no one else is, is identifying the vast, vast majority of these guys are going to be on waiver wires um, probably by week three or week four. I mean, it, you churn through them pretty quickly. And so to take three late round picks and correlate them, you actually need to get less things right. You're Instead of taking three uncorrelated stabs on these late round guys with low probabilities of hitting, you're, you know, let's say this year you take, you know, the Jets guys um, before Michael Carter's ADP eventually gets out of control. But, you know, there's these situations where you can just bet on a few guys uh, from the same situation and you're giving yourself a higher chance of one of them being right uh, and therefore, you're you're actually trying to get less things right. Yeah, and it's not handcuffing, you know, your guys early. It's when you're getting these guys in these ambiguous backfields or just ambiguous situations in general, and the cost is so low on both of the pieces that, mm-hmm. as Pat said, it's okay that you're going to dump one or two of those guys because you're probably going to dump whoever you took at that portion of the draft anyways, and you're increasing your odds of getting something right that 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 is important, you know. If you're taking Rykel Armstead only last year for the Jags backfield, you need Rykel Armstead. You're betting on Rykel Armstead. If you're taking Armstead, Ezekiel, and James Robinson in like one of these 20 round FFPCs where you've got a huge bench, you you just need someone to emerge there, and you're going to have whoever it is, and you're going to cut bait on the other guys. And while we're talking about this, the uh, one of the takeaways for managed leagues. You know, which is definitely a strength of yours over mine, especially grinding those FFPC waivers. But I learned a lot from you jumping in on Justin Herbert in some of your leagues last year and sort of the mindset of waivers. Like sometimes I think in the past, I've too much had the mindset of I'm good at this position next mm-hmm. instead of being like, let me just acquire difference makers and figure it out later. Uh, so that I think that's important in, in managed leagues, especially I do a lot of zero running back leagues. So sometimes I'm tempted to be like, I only care about running backs on the waiver, right? You know, I'm everything else is set. I only care about running backs. And while it's true, one of the advantages of zero RB is that you can devote most of your attention and fab to the running back position. You don't want to be, you know, willfully ignorant of upside and values lurking at other positions. Yeah, you made a point on that episode that was um, you were, where you're saying, like, you know, we spent all this time factoring in all of this chaos that's going to occur throughout the year and not drafting for need and not drafting for starting lineup. And then week one waivers hit and it's like, what do I need? And that's not the way to think <laughs> about it. You're window. still yeah, you're still trying to play for that that long view. And I, I don't think I'd ever kind of really put it because that's like the simplest way to think about it. And I hadn't quite thought about it in those terms. It's like, of course, it's week one. Like, we still want to be swinging for the fences. We still want to be identifying guys who can break out late in the season. And and even though you feel weak and you feel a little exposed at running back because, you know, you have this zero running back team, you still need to kind of stay strong to the central premise of the that the season is going to be chaotic and you want a lot of upside at every position. And you can't just assume that you got – you got it all right in the draft. I mean, the whole strategy is basically saying we can't get it all right in the draft. Yeah. And 
intertwining that with also you know the Stefan Diggs example I used, some of the draft values right now are receivers that seem like they're in crowded target shares where we're overconfident in those target shares going into the season as to where they'll actually be when these are the players that actually are being drafted with room to grow. You know, you look at the Cincinnati situation, a stack I wrote Mm -hmm. about, uh, even if you're just taking individual Cincinnati receivers, you know, if T Higgins gets hurt, Jamar Chase and Tyler Boyd, leap forward quite a bit, you know, San Francisco with Kittle, Debo and Aya, you know, sometimes we're a little over concerned to how the targets are going to shake out and set, you know, it's an offense that could go nuts. And if someone gets hurt or something, we, we could see target shares concentrated. And even with early round running backs, I've started to think about this a little bit more, you know, where Nick Chubb, you know, something happens to cream hunt. He goes nuts. I'm generally lower than the market on Nick Chubb. I am this year, but I do think like that's a facet that we need to think of. Whereas someone like Cam Akers, you know, there's no room to grow. We're drafting Cam Akers as yeah. a dude who's playing, you know, getting 90% of the carries. That's touching the ball 20 times a game. There's no room to grow. Antonio Gibson, who you love, Pat, there's room to grow in the passing game for him. So I think obviously we want to take in to account that some guys will see more volume than others, you know, Deandre Swift, I'm a little worried about how they're going to split things up in that Detroit backfield. So yeah, he's got some upside to his role, but at his cost, there's a little bit of risk. So it's not, it's not as easy. You don't want to get to the point where you're saying the guys who are in worse roles are better picks, but sometimes they're at better prices and they have the same upside. Yeah. So I was listening back to to some of this with the Stefan Diggs example and the guy who was coming to mind this year. And I know he's not an established to run guy. He's almost like the anti-established to run guy uh-oh, right uh-oh. now. But I think the market is going to end up pricing in a lot of the downside risk with him. It's Kenny Galladay. Okay, okay. So I think, I think Kenny Galladay and and I, I, you probably have a strong rebuttal to this point, but I think. With, with Kenny Galladay, like the the crowded wide receiver depth chart might not actually be that crowded. You know, Darius Slayton or whatever's got to get projected some stuff, but Darius Slayton had a really bad year last year. He was not a high draft pick, not a very good prospect. He had a pretty strong rookie year, but that could all just have been a mirage. Kenny Galladay, we have a much, much stronger prior is actually a good player. Um, and you know, the other guys on there are like they're, they're fine. There's some good, there's an okay players on the Giants, but there's no one I'm particularly scared about. Kadarius Tony, I think, is a pretty terrible prospect to get drafted in the first round. Not someone I'm overly concerned about this year at all for Kenny for Kenny Galladay's target share. The other thing about Galladay is he doesn't need to get a huge target share. Like he wins, you know, deeper downfield. He's a guy that can get there without having a ton of targets. Now, I don't expect the quarterback play to be that strong, and I don't expect Jason Garrett to be a very good offensive coordinator. And there's lots of things I don't like about the Giants. But at a certain point this summer, I'm wondering if that all kind of gets priced in. I think you guys have been ahead of market where the ADP was a little bit too high on Galladay. Um, but I feel like, you know, I'm seeing, you know, like bust articles and stuff. Kenny Galladay's a popular guy. Like, mm-hmm. I think I think the market's going to start baking this in pretty heavily. And I'm actually wondering if late in August, I'm going to start drafting Kenny Galladay. 
Yeah, the, he's he's a tough one because he is the bat on talent type guy that you want. My concern with Kenny, I guess, is like with the dig situation, as much as I love this example because it hit so hard, like three things sort of happened. One, Diggs earns an alpha target share because he's that talented. That I think is the most important one we should have taken away. But two, he went from what we thought was like a neutral quarterback swap to Josh Allen was third in MVP voting over yeah. Kirk Cousins. And three, we thought he went from a run first offense to a neutral offense. The Bills were second in the entire league in pass rate over expectation. So like three things hit and hit in a big way. And my concern with Galladay, and maybe I'm not using my imagination enough, it's you know, one, as far as the target share stuff, you know, he he wasn't really a huge alpha in Detroit when he, you know, should have been in, in terms of target share. The quarterback stuff is like pretty clearly a downgrade. Uh yeah. and, and also environment too, you know, dome home games versus outside on the East Coast. And then three. Like this offense, it does, you know, where Diggs had the Bills offense all of a sudden becoming super pass heavy. Like, does Jason Garrett do that? I don't know. I do think you're right where like the price might dip to a point where we're still betting on talent, but it's tough. A couple of guys I had pegged in a wide receiver article I wrote recently, sort of about this theory. One guy I didn't expect to like, and I'm like a little shaky on just because of age and injury, but Odell Beckham, I think people might be like overthinking the pass volume for Cleveland where there's some signs that could flip. There's some signs that Odell could, if he's like, if he is healthy, if he is, you know, just starting to come down that age curve a little bit and not a lot, like he could earn an, like a pretty big alpha target share. You know, that's yeah one of the more likely spots to earn one in the entire NFL. When you look at like talent in the room, at least maybe not structurally. And then an interesting dynamic to me, Pat, what I've seen this year is there's a couple of spots where people are ignoring last year's results completely. When in past years, I feel like they, people like lean on last year's results too much. This year, we've got an absurd gap in ADP between Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore. Mm -hmm. I, I don't love JD McKissick, but like as a zero RB target, like where he's going, it's like last year didn't happen. I mean, how many balls did he catch? You know, he's going as, like RB 50 ish. Um, yeah. I think particularly in best ball where you care a little bit less about the, the upside, later weeks. Yeah. yeah well, I just, because I, I, with McKissick, I'm just like, he's going to, I just feel like he's going to get phased out, but maybe, but I could be wrong about that, you know, first of all. And, and second of all, you know, um, it could happen later than I think. And, and more importantly in best ball, all of those times where he does catch, you know, six, seven balls, they're all, go, they're all getting in your starting lineup. Um, and he and might not, he might not be, the, yeah, he might not be the best example, but it's kind of like in, in years past though, he would have been going so early that it would have been obvious to not take him, I guess. Right. It, it, like it would have been like, Oh my God, guys, he's not catching 80 balls again or whatever it was, you know, yep. Antonio. And now it's kind of like, well, what if he did? <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> 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 so, but there's, there's some spots like that, that I think are a little bit interesting where the market is just, um, probably because of sharper content and stuff out there, but they're less results based. Uh, P 
Peter Overzet and I joked about this in DFS. I remember the when Diggs was still with Minnesota, he had a really funny review where Diggs scored three touchdowns the week before. And then the next week, everyone played Brandon Cooks as like a buy low guy. And then like Diggs ended up lower owned than Brandon Cooks and like did really yeah. well. The DFS markets, like I remember there was that Will Fuller week where like he had had a dud and then he was in a spot for like an awesome blow up spot. And it's like everyone played him and he went for like 50 points. And this was like two or three years ago. And it's just like, God damn it. Like, you know, a few a few years before, everyone would have been off him because he had just blown up. Or he just like blown up in their faces. I mean, um, I faded him that week because the ownership. I was visiting Dink in New York City and it was a painful Sunday at the bar. Oof, oof. That's rough, man. That's rough. I, I remember, I think I had some. I didn't have all. I didn't go all in. But we could have gone all in. 2000. 14 or whatever we could have gone all in we could have <laughs> um right, just I, I, just I, on my last episode i don't want to be you know i want to be very clear about my kenny galladay point because i don't want to be tied to daniel jones number one wide receiver uh, <laughs> for eternity here he's dropped a full round in adp uh since since may uh going uh in an ffpc's adp tool here on rotavis he dropped from like pick 60 all the way down to pick 72 so uh, yeah. that's a that's a pretty big fall, and I could see it falling even a little bit further as projections come through and, and people are you know kind of less and less excited about this situation. So that's all I'm yeah, saying. He's he's starting to like he's starting to dip into wide receiver three territory, and at that point, you know, it might be uh worth a stab. I do think we should end this podcast, you know, one of the great on one of the greatest inventions, melding of minds in fantasy football history is the invention of the hyper rojo oh strategy well i've got a few more things to to say okay. after this but, okay. Okay. but okay. i'm well, happy we... to talk about the hyper rojo strategy which uh which is gonna it's gonna change everything so but this was legitimately like taking a joke but turning it serious on the fly kind of talking about the hyper fragile running back strategy last year like I kind of started with like the theoretical extreme of how this would work. And then we talked about it on a podcast and Pat kind of showed me a team where he like tweaked a version of it, you know, because he had to get his Rojo love in there. And it was also, it was kind of like, well, actually this, this makes sense. Let's do the hyper fragile running back strategy, but like ease up on how many running backs we take early, hit the wide receivers in the running back dead zone, and then take, you know, one or two upside guys, but still have a role out of the gate that you, you know, really like. And, and Rojo fit that to a T and he does it this year. He's, yep. he's perfect for the hyper, the hyper Rojo strategy is fully in play. Take two running backs out of the gate, get Rojo as your third. Yeah. And then like someone else is your fourth and and you're, you're rocking and rolling. Yeah. And like right now I just did the NBC uh, mock draft and the ADPs were didn't quite follow, um, so I was able to get like I was able to get Javante Williams in I think the seventh round there oh, wow. um, as my running back three. So that obviously made things a little easier to execute the hyper rojo. But I got Tevin Coleman as the fourth guy, um, and I think I think if you feel really good about your running back three, you can get even a little bit late with your running back four. Um, you know, and out of the gate, I went Derrick Henry and I got Cam Akers on the way back. So I felt really good about the top three guys. Um, and then not even having to force that running back four, uh, you know. So I think it all kind of depends. And that's that's one of the things that I think is 
been really helpful both on the pod and in your writing, like thinking about running backs, not just about when you're taking them, how many you're taking, but really just sort of thinking about the equity that you're putting in. And, you know, each draft pick really kind of accounts for like a certain auction value that you have. You know, you got, you basically got a chip worth a certain amount of auction dollars and you are spending that chip on, you know, a certain position, a certain, certain player. And if you're spending way too much of those auction dollars on running back, like you, you're, you're kind of blowing it, you know? And so if you've already spent a bunch of your, your auction dollars on two early running backs, then you have to adjust what you're doing from then on, or you're just burning upside at that point because you're, you're putting money into a spot that's already got plenty of it. And you need to make sure that you're spreading your dollars out to, to have upside at every position. Um, yeah, and tying that in with maximizing your edge, like if you're spending that much on two running backs, in theory, your edge is that these guys smash and you kind of have yeah. to, sometimes you have to build around assumptions and it, it just take your L if they don't hit. Yep. One of the one of the things, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, we were talking about uh, input volatility on, on one of the shows. And I just thought this was a really important um, point to emphasize you, you said, you know, there's two types of volatil- volatility. You've got efficiency where someone can run good or bad. Um, but then there's also the type of volatility, this input volatility where, you know, where you're making projections, you don't even know what to put in for projections. And we're really just guessing. Uh, the, the example that came up on the show was that week we had had uh, this, uh, the San Francisco uh, fill-in game where we had Trent Taylor be the guy that everyone was sort of projecting. And then it ended up being Richie James Jr. who had this huge game. And you were pointing out, like, if we were sitting and making a new projection, we would have projected Richie James Jr. for a lot higher than we did because that projection was simply wrong. So when you have those volatile situations, those uncertain situations, you can end up with a guy who's projected five points too low. And then on top of that, he can run hot. He might, he might be low owned. Like you can stack advantages on top of that. So finding those situations that are really uncertain to begin with, where we have that input volatility is I think one of the key edges that you were talking through for DFS, but it applies to so many things it applies. I think a lot to high stakes, redraft, best ball, really all of it. So uh, yeah. that, that's a big takeaway for me. I mean, input volatility right now on underdog, Michael Carter, RB 32 and ADP Tevin Coleman, RB 56, uh, 110 spots later. We don't know, you know, like Michael Carter's more appealing as the rookie, as the pass catcher, but it's still, what was it? Fourth round draft capital. You know, they signed Tevin Coleman. Like there's not even a clear sign that they prefer Michael Carter to Tevin Coleman, you know, unless I'm mistaken there. So, I mean, I mean that, that that's an example of uncertainty and input volatility. Whereas, if you're pegging Michael Carter to be the clear-cut starter here, he's going to look good in projections. But we just don't know if that's the case. Whereas, you know, there's some other scenarios where we know. I mean, the Cam Akers one again, like Cam Akers is going to swing based on like injury or like efficiency swings. But we know what the role is going to be. You know, we're yeah, we can project that pretty, you know, quote unquote, correctly. Yeah, or Dalvin Cook would would be any, yeah. or Derrick Henry. I mean, we know what Derrick Henry's role is going to be. Like, there's very little, you know, maybe he 
maybe with Arthur Smith, things change a little bit. Maybe there's even, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's even a little bit more upside with without Arthur Smith because he was never really used as a pass catcher under Smith, and maybe that could change. Maybe the offense isn't as efficient, et cetera, et cetera. But that really comes down mostly, most of that uncertainty is sort of efficiency, efficiency of the offense, stuff that every player deals with. But there's not a ton of we just don't know how many carries, you know, how what percentage of the carries to project for Derrick Henry, what percentage of the snaps. Like the snap ranges for Christian McCaffrey and Derrick Henry are, are pretty tight, whereas we could literally be wrong about which running back is the starter in some of these backfields. Uh, you know, the Jets, I think, is probably the number one example. But last year, you know, we- <laughs> I'm laughing because the Dolphins last year, I don't know if I've seen any seen anything like this where no injuries occurred and miles gaskin is the clear-cut starter week one and no one had any idea and no, no one, knew one drafted it. him well to be fair uh pete pete overs that was told directly by patrick laird that it would be miles gaskin so there was one guy who knew david really? told as well yeah he they did a podcast with him and he was like yeah it's me miles man miles is awesome and they're like, cool. <laughs> thanks we'll ignore that <laughs> So the information was related. So, it just and, it, and technically, in their defense, it was relayed to us. They they broadcast that. We all heard it. <laughs> we all, all just right, was so like, what does he know? New lesson. If you have an ambiguous backfield, and if one of the running backs in that ambiguous backfield has a take, it might be worth following that take. <laughs> you you should tail sharp people. That's another thing that uh, that I learned on this podcast, Mike. We tail sharp people. <laughs> especially when those sharp people are playing the same position <laughs> on the same team as the guy they're saying will be. Dude, that's be so important. funny. I forgot about, I can't, be- <laughs> I remember he liked miles a lot. I didn't realize. I think, it, I think it was slightly more ambiguous than that, but we had so little to go on that. We really ought yeah. to have run with that. Um, so anyway, those guys, it's kind of like Pete's DeAndre Swift call from, from in season where he, he should get credit for miles Gaskin <laughs> call too. <laughs> The Swift call is bold. And Pete, I think he semi wait, did he call him as a bit or he semi he like kind of called No, Swift. I think I think what happened was Pete like called DeAndre Swift on the swole cast or something, but then he didn't play DeAndre Swift did in any of him. his lineups. And so everyone was having a good old time congratulating him for his DeAndre Swift bold call that he didn't actually play. That's doing that on the tilt space as like the congratulations were coming in. Yes. Yes. Um, so all right, this will be the last thing that I had basically because of all this is I was kind of rethinking through this stuff and re-listening to some of these old episodes. I came up with, I think I'm going to do an article on this, but I basically wanted to lay out like preseason. I want to lay out my week priors. You know, because one of the things that we talked through with the Miles Gaskin situation, week one, like the week one waivers, I was lamenting that, you know, like, why wasn't I going harder on Miles Gaskin? Because we really didn't have any idea who this running back starter was going to be. He has a snap share. And that's, and, and you made the point that in that scenario, that, uh, that additional uncertainty is all upside. Um, and so that was clearly in retrospect. And I don't think in that case it is just sort of chasing the results. I think it was it was correct to view, given the snap share, given the uncertainty heading into the situation, that that was the guy to really 
spend your fab on and, and be really overweight on coming out of week one. But I think part of it that I want to do to help prepare myself for that situation is actually to lay out the things that I feel that I have weakly held beliefs on that where my priors are weak, because I think that can just help you be more nimble when these situations arise, uh, when the season starts. Yeah. What's it? Bell says strong conviction, weakly held. Yeah. So, you know, you once we get new information, let's act on it quickly. And yeah, that'd be the Gaskin thing. Like, okay, we, we didn't feel that confident about the Miami situation. Like let, let's pivot immediately and hard right. with this new information. And if we're wrong, we're wrong, but the, you know, the, the payoffs there. So yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Uh, I think too, even like in the future of like projections and stuff, what I'd love to do, it's just hard because you really have to be diligent about tracking it. But like, more, you know, I, I had an idea, you know, for DFS, just flagging the guy's confidence levels or uh, projection each week and then like even doing some machine learning after the end of the season and being like okay mm-hmm. w- were we more accurate on the guys we were more confident on or not you know like i would, would love be, to see that that would be cool to know and it's it's hard because you know we're playing dfs and it's changing so quickly but i think i'm going to try and figure out some way to track that because it would it would be cool and then that feeds into like okay well now we can make a better range of outcome projection for a player if we you know if we have that information if we know it's if it turns out that that's predictable our feelings are predictable then we can factor our feelings in mathematically moving forward so uh well especially if there's if there's positional differences like even if you're even if it's only predictable at running back where I would assume if we feel extremely strongly about a projection at running back, that's probably better than if you feel extremely strongly about a projection at wide receiver, I would imagine, but I don't know, maybe it's wrong. Maybe there are spots where, you know, you'd never feel extremely strongly unless it's like Devonte Adams in the middle of, of the run he had last year. And it's actually, you know, you're actually just as accurate or more accurate when it's the wide receiver, because that situation comes up more rarely. I don't know, but like learning that I think would be extremely valuable. Basically, you know, is input volatility predictable? You know, yeah. <laughs> if yeah. if when we're uncertain about a backfield situation, you know, it turns out to be we were uncertain for a reason, then we can factor that in better. Um, once we like really know that, and I think like that marriage of like qualitative and quantitative stuff is really cool. And I think, I think actually putting it down like you're suggesting your weekly held beliefs will be a really good mind reminder in season like to actually force you to do i think it's one thing to have in your head but people forget even what their opinions were yeah you know people forget what their opinions were like i'm i forget what my opinions were you're like no my opinion would have been that that was wrong (laughs) (laughs) that's a hundred percent a real thing I would bring yeah. up the book Super Forecasting, but I would get like just made fun of. There was like a. Won't, I won't make fun of you. Well, actually, well, there was like a two week period where every conversation we had in Discord with with me, Mike, Leone, and or me, Gretch, Leone, and and Pete was uh was somehow related back to this book that Mike had had just read, Super Forecasting. Just wanted to share life lessons, you know, <laughs> but they they had like asked people before. I think it was about the unification of Germany, maybe like if that would actually happen or I don't remember what it was like some of right. big event like that. And 
like people after the fact, like totally forgot what their opinion was like previously because they had this narrative that they could follow. So, uh, I mean, I do the, I'll look at stats from previous years and like, you'll see, you know, someone who like had a really like Eddie Royal had like a really strong rookie season in yards per route run. And it's like, there is this, like you can feel, I can literally feel it creeping in of me being like, well, that was Eddie Royal though. So I would have known he was bad. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, yeah. no he wouldn't have because he wasn't any royal to you then <laughs> like you know there's this uh like i don't know it's just I, I can see myself doing it even for you know things that have already happened uh me kind of rewriting what i would have thought so i i think it's one of the strongest biases that you know maybe we don't think about because there's all, lots of biases that we talk about in dfs but i don't know that we really talk about that one so much in in fantasy or dfs yeah um, and even for DFS, like not just the part I mentioned, but even like if there's an outlier performance early, like it's kind of the same thing as the Gaskin thing, like chasing that in DFS the next week too, or, or versus not chasing it, like depending on where your conviction was prior, you know, right? To, you know, because beginning of the season, like, like sometimes that's the biggest edge is like, what what are you jumping on right away week one? Yeah, because you think it's real and, and like what are you avoiding and it's super hard to do because you know it's like almost impossible but having that belief system like actually kind of penciled out on situations would probably make it easier agreed all right well we got to get out of here but i do want to say before we go um you know i talked about what a joyous podcast was but i just want to thank adam and evan and taylor and and wiggins and you and the whole etr team dink everybody for just the the opportunity to be such a part of a, a great team to be able to do this podcast um, and to be able to to write for the site and just have this platform that has just been I think really huge for for me personally and also just an absolute joy to be a part of. Uh, so thank you to the entire establish the run team and thanks to the establish the edge team, Mike Leone. <laughs> yeah, and from, <laughs> ex- I mean from. From our end, it, it's been a pleasure. Like I've, I, like I said, I've learned so much not just on this podcast, but seeing you do the dynasty ranks and everything. So, thank you, Pat, and you know, good luck. Excited yep. to to see your content. Thank you, and I'm excited to see uh, where this podcast goes from here. The the Mike Leone solo project. The industry <laughs> has needed it for a long time, and and now we're finally getting it. So this will be great. Make sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Follow Mike on Twitter at two hats one Mike. I'm Matt Packerain. Establish the Edge. We'll be back very soon.